Well, good morning. It's great to see everyone here this morning. And it's interesting because uh, the last time Pastor Joey asked for me to come speak, um, I was all prepared and ready to go, and I got the flu. And so this, this one message has sort of been inside me for like three months. And so uh, I hope, uh, yeah, hope it go, all goes well. But um, I'm thoroughly confident and thankful uh, every time the Lord has me to open his word and to share um, what God has prepared, not just in my heart, but for you. Because I am truly confident that God has called each one of you here this morning to be moved by the Spirit. Because God has been preparing you uh, every time that you come and to praise his name to be moved by him. And I am confident that every time God's word is shared, we leave the place that we worship differently than when we entered. And so that's always my prayer. That's always uh, my yearning just to see people changed by the proclamation of the word. And so um, I consider it a, a privilege to be here this morning. And so let's bow our heads for a, a word of prayer so the Spirit of God can speak to us. Father, we sort of come with humble hearts, yearning for your Spirit to touch each one of us. For each one of us is in a different place this morning. For some, Father, things have been heavy upon our shoulders, and we come with a desire to have that weight just moved in a different place, hopefully to the place where we leave those burdens at the foot of the cross. Some of us fathers, we are on paths to where we don't know where to turn and we're looking for answers. Others, fathers, we have the opportunity to be ones in which we are used by you to come alongside those who are hurting, looking for direction. And so as we come to your word, we have the opportunity opportunity to see your glory upon display. It's amazing to think that when we put our thoughts upon you, that we get to see that you are a gracious and merciful God, one who is slow to anger, one who knows every aspect of our lives, and just that one thought puts a fear within our hearts because we may not, other people around us may not fully know everything going on, but we know what's going on. We know our true selves, and sometimes, Father, that true self we want no one else to see, but you see our hearts, and you see our motives. And so, Father, when we fall, you are there to pick us up. When, when our hearts are pure, you give us the, the opportunity to, to be used greatly by you. And so, Father, we thank you that when we come and to call upon you that you are near that you are faithful, that you are one who will always hear us when we come with open hands, not bringing anything of our own merit, but because of everything that your son had done, dying in our place upon the cross. And so that is why we ask your spirit to move in such a way that we truly will leave this place different from the time that we have spent here. And so, Father, we ask that your name will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, I heard a message from Steve Lawson to where recently he was speaking at the recent Ligonier's conference to where R.C. Sproul just passed on, and he was called to 
be one of the speakers um, at the conference right after that. And it was interesting because I heard for the first time that he actually sat under the uh, seminary ministry of R.C. Sproul. And during his younger days, R.C. sort of told him that, Steve, that you are very good, but there's, there's an issue with, with, with you, that you spend so much time in the epistles of the New Testament that you need to get more in the Old Testament. And so he challenged him to not just get into the Old Testament, but get into the narratives of the Old Testament. And so when I heard that, my ears sort of picked up because uh, we're, um, we're on pastor, we're going through the Old Testament in a survey kind of manner. And so some weeks we're in a book one week, and sometimes we're in a book over 10 weeks. And so it's really as the Spirit moves and, and uh, how the Lord sort of prepares my heart. But it's interesting because when you um, go through the Old Testament, you begin to see how the Bible is put together. And we're going to be looking at um, the first book of the Bible this morning at a story that moved me. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of Genesis, chapter 22. And the book of Genesis is really easy to understand because though it's 50 chapters, it's about four events and four people. Four events, creation, fall, flood, nations. And it's about people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph is the fourth person that the book of Genesis talks about. And it's interesting because when you look at the Bible um, as a whole, it's, it really has one theme. It's the theme of Jesus. That from the beginning to the end, it points to Jesus. That in the Old Testament, Jesus is the promised one that will come. When you get to the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus is the promised one who is here. When you look at the epistles, he is the promised one explained. And then when you look at the last book of the Bible, Revelation, he is the promised one who will return. And so all the way in the beginning, we see, even in uh, chapter 4, that Jesus is the promised one who is going to crush the heel of the serpent. Now, back in seminary days, they made me learn a term. That's the Proto-Evangelion. Because I had to learn it, I have to use it because it's just there in my mind. But it's just the first seed of the gospel that even all the way back then, there was that promise that one day there will be one who will judge sin. There will be one who will come to set up his kingdom and there will be one who will rule forever. And so when you begin to look at the book of Genesis, especially when we get to this point in Genesis chapter 22, God is going to be using one of the people in a great and mighty way. To, to the Jews, Abraham is like the primary guy. There's Abraham, there's David, you know, there's, he's, uh, Abraham's the patriarch. He is the one to where um, a, uh, a lot of weight sort of, sort of falls. They like Abraham. But we're going to be looking at um, a situation in Abraham's life to where we can all uh, begin to wrap our hands around, if you would. Because we're going to be talking about a concept that, at the outset, you may think it's, it's very basic. And we're going to be looking at Abraham's faith. And in some ways, faith could be a very nebulous kind of thing, but yet we think we have a grasp upon it. But faith, or our trusting in the Lord, 
is really a growing process. And we're going to see that in the life of Abraham this morning. Because Abraham is first mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, where God spoke directly to him. His name was Abram at that time, and that was the first instance in which God told him that he needed to pack up his bags and go to a place, and that God would give him the, uh, the opportunity to become a great nation. And God promised that there would be a land, that there would be a seed, and a blessing that would come through his line. And as you know, that's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the covenant that God um, gave to Abraham and that the Jews hold, uh, hold firmly to, in which God ratified with himself that there will be that promised one who will come to give God's people a land, a kingdom, that there will be a blessing that God would bless through his people and, and that there would be a nation. And so in Genesis chapter 17, God then begins to repeat that one aspect. And all of the other covenants that the Old Testament has is sort of a branch of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we get to see that Abraham then believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham came to faith in the same aspect as we do, to where he put his faith and trust in the God of Israel, and he trusted him in every aspect. It did not mean that he was perfect in everything that he had done, but his faith was a growing process, because if you know anything about the life of Abraham, he did not always do what he was supposed to do. And so we get to see that he, can, he comes to faith in the same aspect as we do. Because there are many out there who sort of begin to tend to think that the God of the left side of the Bible is different than the God of the right side of the Bible. That when you begin to look at the Old Testament, because right now I'm in the minor prophets and all you get is judgment. That's, there's there's 17, uh, my, uh, 17 prophets, you know, five major and 12 minor, and all you get is judgment. But in each one of those books of judgment, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer that God, God will work to bring about the promises that he had done. And so the whole point of Romans chapter 4 gets into that one aspect to where Abraham comes to faith. And he comes to faith in the exact same way as we do. He put his complete trust in the Lord and his life was reckoned as righteousness. And so the playing out of the Abraham covenant begins in Genesis and it ends within the book of Revelation. And so Abraham's faith at this point in chapter 22 is one in which he is older in, in his walk with God. But we get to see glimpses of how strong his faith actually is. Because for ourselves, we never want to have a faith that is shaky. Because we know that difficult times will come. And even when you begin to open up the New Testament in the book of James, James chapter 1, right in the opening verses, it says, um, be joyful, you know, when these hard times come. And usually for me, my flesh says that's the last thing that I want to do is to be joyful. Because normally when hard times come, we get emotional. Some of us could get moody. Some of us could be very snarky to the people around us. 
Some of us get angry and we lash out at others around us. And so having a shaky faith to where it's dependent upon circumstances can be very difficult. Many people will encounter health issues. You know, what, what happens if a health issue comes up? What if all of a sudden I sort of break an arm and now I need surgery? That can happen, can it? What happens if we're in, in an accident or lose our jobs? Our faith can be very shaky. Anxiety can sort of fill, with, fill our hearts. We can be, um, get to the place to where we just want to give up and crawl under a rock. There are times in which the things within our life, we begin to realize that we're holding things on very tightly. And when those things are taken, taken away, excuse me, um, it can be very difficult. Relationships with people can become frayed, and then that, um, that fraying turns into friction, and that friction turns into there's a huge separation between people that we used to get along, whether or not it's family members or friends, or even with our spouses. And so though when you look at those situations, times can be difficult. But God is going to bring in Abraham's life a extreme. He's going to command him to do something to where it would be not just hard for us, that for most people we'd probably refuse to do. And we're going to be looking at the testing of Abraham this morning in Genesis chapter 22. And so this morning we're going to be going through this one chapter and actually completing it, because if you know anything when I preach, I'm like, Joey, we're lucky to get through one verse sometimes, but that's okay. But with me, since I'm not preaching next week, we got to get her done. And so we're going to get it done. And so at this point in Abraham's life, he is now about 100 years old-ish. And so God first re revealed himself to him back in chapter 12. He was about 75 years old. That's when God's going to tell him, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. Gives him a covenant. Fifteen years later, when he was 90, God renews those promises in chapter 17, and he's 90, so he's up there. Ten years later, Abraham and Sarah finally have a son in chapter 21. And so now as chapter 22 begins to open up, Isaac is now somewhere around 13 years old or maybe a little more. And so Abraham is really old. He'd be old. He's probably celebrating his 60th anniversary of his 50th birthday. Because when you're over 100, that's how you begin to keep track of things. And so he's, he's up there, but yet God is not through with his faith. He wants his faith to be grown. He wants to test his faith to see how faithful he is to him. And so God is going to call Abraham and give him a commandment that is highly unusual. One in which we don't have this kind of command anywhere else in the Bible. It's a perplexing command. And we find it in verse 1. So look at verse 1, if you would, of Genesis chapter 22. And it says this. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Now, that first phrase, now it came about after these things, well, that was 
the birth of, of, of Isaac. He was the promised one. He was the one that went back all the way to, uh, to um, chapter 12 that a promised seed would come through him, but Abraham had no children. And then God would reaffirm to him later on that there would be one. He would have a son. That's when Sarah laughs, and, and, and you know the story. She, how, how can I have a child? I'm old. I'm really old, too. And so, but, but God works this, um, worked despite the situation, and Isaac was born. And then we get to see that God is going to bring about a test to Abraham. And so everything else that, that happens at this point is a test of Abraham's faith. He's going to be seeing how much does he trust in God in the most difficult of situations. Now, I know with, with myself, going looking back at my college days and my seminary days, just that word test, it's something that I, I don't like. I don't like tests. I study for tests. Um, I do okay on, on tests. But I still have dreams even to this day of showing up in my college classroom, and I think it's the first day of, of class, but it's the last day of class, and we're having a final exam. And it's like, what exam? What, what, I can't have an exam. And I, don't, and I studied in school, but I have these dreams. And so I, I don't personally like the word test, but God is testing Abraham here. And in the same way that he tested Abraham, he tests us throughout our walk with him. And it's interesting because the testing of God is not a negative for us. We look at our difficulties as negatives, but it's a positive. And to understand this, you need to look at the word test there. The word test there means to put to a test or to try. It's used 34 times in, in the Bible. Looking at Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20, we find the testing of Israel's faith. Moses is coming off the mountain with the law. He has the law in his hands, and he says to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain in you, so that you may not sin. And so God was bringing about events to strengthen the faith of his people. Even in the New Testament, that Greek word now is used in James chapter 22 while talking about the faith of Abraham from this passage talks about how that faith was perfected. And so God was perfecting his faith through what he is about to do. And so though events are difficult, God, as we shall see, is going to be bringing about those difficulties, those circumstances that we don't want to go through to perfect our faith. And so the scripture are full of circumstances, and this one sort of stood out for me because God has to offer his son Isaac. And even we know from the, once again, from the opening chapters of James, that when we are to consider it all joy when we go through trials, these trials are multifaceted, multicolored is the original. They're all shapes and all sizes. And when it looks to the practical aspect, it comes when your car breaks down, and it comes when you know, the guy who fixes your car wants $1,000, because everything is $1,000 when you bring your car in, and it just sort of begins to pile up. And I get to the place where, you know, 
all right, Lord, it's your money. You know, you, you, you gave it to me and you want it to go, so don't hang on to it. Those things happen all the time. And so God is going to call Abraham to a trial that is most dark. He is going to test him to the extreme, though we don't see everything that is going on in his head, but he is going to come to the place where he's going to realize that he needs to be faithful to what God is going to command him to do. And so it's, it's a command that we find in verse 2. And so um, God, God says to him, Abraham, and he says, here am I. So immediately he is very familiar with God speaking. If God would speak to me, I would not be immediate in my, probably in my response. But because he's already spoken to, to God before, um, it, it was quick for him to respond. And so he says in verse 2, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now look at that one sentence that, that we have there. Because God commands it in a very interesting way. Because usually within the Hebrew, to emphasize something, it gets repeated. You know, they didn't have a change of font aspect. They didn't have highlighters. They didn't have exclamation points. Um, this aspect gets repeated and then sort of tweaked in a way. He says to Abraham, take now your son. His command could have stopped right then and there because that's everything that um, he needs to know. But he says, take now your son, but then he begins to qualify it. He says, take now your only son. Uh-huh. He's emphasizing the relationship that he has with Isaac. He's his only son. Not just that, because that one phrase is going to get repeated two more times within this one passage. So he's saying, not only do I want to take your son, but your soul son, whom you love. God wanted to emphasize with Abraham that he loved, deeply loved, his son. He waited for his son his entire life. For the majority of his, his life, they had, he had no children. And that's a pain within itself. So when God worked in a miraculous way, it was special. He had a deep love that only a father could have for a son. But it went further than that. He also knew that through Isaac would come the promised one, the Messiah. He knew that he would, um, through Isaac, would come a great nation and that there would be a kingdom set forth in in the land. And so he loved his son. He, he knew that it was through him that God would answer the promises that he had made. And he goes on to say, so he says the first command aspect, take. Now he says, go. Go to the land of Moriah. And so go to this one area that you know about probably. And then thirdly, offer him. And the, um, the implication there is, I want you to offer him, your only son, whom you love. I want you to kill him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So immediately this stands out. How is this possible? Why is he telling this to me? Because to him... 
how was God going to answer the promise that he had made? And so, you, uh, and, and so he tells him to kill. That burnt offering gives us a glimpse to how extensive this aspect was going to be. Not just to kill him, but he was to set his body afire like a sacrifice would be. That word burnt offering actually means to ascend or literally to go up and smoke. It's used in Leviticus 1.9 as a soothing aroma from the burnt offering. And so God is going to tell Abraham to go and to offer the son that you love deeply. Now, that's a, that's a hard test. Now, that's, that is difficult. If you're a parent and you love your children, that is something to where immediately, like, no, this has to be wrong. This, this isn't right. Because when God told Jonah, I want you to go to those Ninevites, those people that you despise, and I want you to bring a message of judgment to them, Jonah said, no, I'm not going to go. His response immediately was, I'm not going. And And so God told him to immediately go, but he immediately went in the complete and opposite direction. That's what Jonah did when God told him. And it took a big fish to get his mind in in the proper place. But here we find his response in verse 3. We see Abraham's response. So Abraham rose early in the morning. One of my first questions to Abraham is going to be, did he sleep that night? Because as a parent, I, I don't think I would have been able to sleep that night knowing that within the next handful of days, um, Isaac would be dead. But it's early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. So in verses 3 three through 8, we see Abraham's obedience to the Lord's command, which was based on his faith. We don't see him complain. We don't see him murmur. We just see him do what God had told him to do. And the question that you need to keep in the back of your mind is the why. Why is he doing this? For each step of the way, it's going to be the why. And the answer to that question is not going to be found here in this passage, but we'll see that in a moment. And so he had a faith in in the Lord that was going to set his mind in the proper place to carry out the command. That faith is... Something to where we all can understand in one shape or matter. Because even if you go on a plane, we have faith that the pilot, the man flying the plane, even though he turns it on autopilot halfway through, that he knows at least enough to fly the plane and to land the plane. We don't ever want to see his resume when we board the plane. Let me see your resume first just to make sure that you're qualified. We have faith in that he's a professional. He's trained to do what he's supposed to do. When you take an Uber, you know, you have faith in your Uber guy, hopefully, that he's not going to take you uh, somewhere and rob you and just, just leave you standing there in the side of the road in a city that you have no clue in which you're in. You have faith that he has a license, and you have faith that he knows what he's doing. 
The same thing with a doctor. We have faith within the doctor that when we go needing a procedure, that he has the right training. Because they're professionals. You're hoping that he doesn't have a book that's opened up and he's reading the first line in the book and he's doing it and then what's next? Because if you do it that way, you may skip a line and that may not be good. And so we all have faith. And even when we come to faith in a saving way, we we put our complete trust in Jesus. And so we all have a degree of faith and that faith is developing It's getting deeper and it's growing. And we see here that there is no anger in Abraham's life. There's no reluctance. There's no hesitancy. He gets up and he obeys. Now, we didn't, we don't really know um, that if Abraham knew exactly where he was going, he just knew the general area. And the place that he was going to be going, that God would tell him once once he gets there. And so he had an unquestioning obedience here to God's confusing command that he would carry out. And it's, in my estimation, a great example of how our faith needs to be. Because there are so many times we know what God wants us to do, whether or not it says it squarely in his word or we received counsel from someone and that, that makes sense, that's what we should do, or we just sort of know, you know, we, we just sort of ponder and this is what God wants us to do and he's confirming that. And how many times we, dig, we could dig our heels in because that's how the flesh responds to hardships and difficulties. Sometimes we dig our heels in, we can take it out on on those around us, we can complain and murmur. Sometimes our hearts just get so anxious that we just don't know what to do. But in Abraham's situation here, he he, he just does it. He just goes out and he just does it. So look at verse verse 4, we get to see his journey. In verse 4 it says, In the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now this is probably sometime during the third day. And so they're walking. There's only one donkey. And the place in which they're probably going is probably like 50 miles away. And so during this time, he had a, uh, the opportunity to talk to his son. Probably to... Uh, talk to him about God and how God has worked in his previous life. Though we don't have it here, when you're walking for a long distance, you talk. You, you um, open the window of your heart and you give a glimpse to, uh, to the people with you on what God is doing. And so, um, so it's, it's taking three days. And then in verse 5, we get to see the beginning of the, the test. So they arrive in a place and Abraham said to the men... That are with him, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go there, over there, and we will worship and return. So he, he tells the two young men to wait. And look how the, the sentence is constructed I in the lad. And so um, all of the construction here is in the plural. I and the lad, we will go over there. We will worship, and the key here, we will return. And so when you begin to answer the question, why is Abraham doing this? 
It's because of his faith. And to answer that, you have to wait a moment. And so he's expecting to return with Isaac. Not to be disobedient to God and not do it, but he's expecting God to work. And so in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So he says, here, you take the wood, I'll carry the fire and the knife. And so because he's old, remember, he's really old. And so um, the two of them walk together. And so this, this pictures Isaac not being as like a Sunday school picture of a little boy carrying wood because to have a burnt offering, you need, you need wood. You need a lot of wood. You need like a cord. It's because you have to burn a carcass. You have to completely, it, it has to burn. It has to be nothing left. It has to be really hot. And so Isaac's strong enough to be carrying this wood while Abraham carries uh, the fire and he carries the knife. And while they walk, verse 7, we see Isaac speaking to his father. He said, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire, behold, the wood. But he asked a very key question that he knew that when we go to worship the Lord and we do a burnt offering, we need something. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? We're going to come back to that phrase in, in a moment because that is a very crucial phrase. And he's, tell, he's telling his father, didn't we forget the lamb because we're going to be worshiping the Lord? And Abraham has a touching response to his son. That is one of those phrases that I have underlined in my Bible. He says, God will provide for himself. That's a great phrase. God will provide. God will provide what? The lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked together. When you begin to go through hard times, we need to be reminded of the fact that God will provide. The natural response of our flesh is for me to figure it out. What are the answers there? And which is okay, but we tend to leave God out of the equation. When God is a part of the equation, there's a trusting that somehow through this situation, God will work. God will provide. Whether it's money, whether or not it's opportunity, whatever that situation may be, he will provide. And so it's going to be a great example to the faith of his son. Isaac's going to need a strong faith later on. But that's another story for another day. But he's telling his son, Isaac, don't worry. God is trustworthy. He's worked in the past, and he's going to work now. And so when we begin to doubt the Lord, when we begin to worry, we should be like what Paul says in in Philippians 4 and verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request made known to God. And then what happens? The peace of God will fill, uh, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
And so when we have those aspects and we bring them to the Lord, the Lord will work to remove the anxiety and the worry out of the way, knowing the fact that the Lord will provide. And so we get to see, and then what happens in verse 9, and they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built the altar there, arranged the wood. And so he's there, they came, God tells them where we're to stop. They begin to build uh, the bonfire in which they're going to ha- have the sacrifice. And he binds his son Isaac and lays him on top of the altar. Now we're not given the details of what transpired. But the only thing that we see here is Isaac's obedience. That he sort of knew that his father was going to sacrifice him. Which must, which must have been a difficult aspect for, uh, for Abraham to sort of get to that place. To where he was willing to sacrifice his son. Because every parent would say that their, one of their priorities is to keep their children safe. Because if you go into a a home in which there's a new infant, there's hundreds of safety features all over the house. Everything's locked up because that that little guy or that little girl is going to become a rug rat before you know it and be crawling around and getting into everything. And you just have to take those sharp corners and and the poisons and everything else is just out of the way. And so there's safety features galore. But here, Abraham was ready to fulfill the task. Verse 10, Abraham then stretches out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. So he was ready to carry out the God's command, but then the angel of the Lord intervenes in verse 11. So the angel of the Lord, which is probably a pre-incarnate picture of Christ, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham's quick to the response, here am I. And he said in verse 12, Don't stretch your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for, I, for now, for I know that you fear God since you have withheld your son, your only son, from me. And so Abraham was going about to fulfill the task, but God intervenes and Abraham passes the test. His obedience outweighed the love for his son. Because the test was, do you love me more than what you love your son? If I command you to do this, will you do that despite how much you love your son? And so in some ways, it's a very simple test of faith. Verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, God provided Behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt sacrifice in place of his son. What a great story. In my mind's eye, I picture it sort of like uh, the Star Trek. He, he beamed down a land and all of a sudden it was air. There it is. Poof. What a, what a great picture. And so God provided the sacrifice for Isaac. And so Abraham took Isaac off the wood, loosened his ropes. They slay the lamb. They drain the blood. They place the carcass upon the fire. They light it. And it's a sacrifice to the Lord of their obedience to him. And so while things are going about, Isaac is watching his father. 
And to, to Isaac, he gets to see how faithful his father was to God and how God was faithful and trustworthy to the promises that he had made to him. And look at verse 14. This is great, too. And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. <laughs> what a great statement. It, that, that place was such a great place to him that he names it. This is the place to remind all of God's people that the Lord will provide. This is a great place. Because every time you walk by it, you should always look at that and see to one another, you know what? God provides, doesn't he? It, it was a living object lesson for the people of Israel. I need to go see that place. But that's okay. Verse, verse 17 it, go, it goes on how God reaffirms the promise to, to Abraham. Well, verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of the enemies. That's, that has the aspect of the ruling aspect of the kingdom. And your seed of all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young, uh, to his young men. They arose and went to Beersheba, um, Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is a great, great picture because we get to see that this is one of those instances that I believe that when the Lord was on the road to Emmaus after his crucifixion at the end of the book of Luke to where he's going through the Old Testament to the two travelers that he opened up the book and he explained all the places which talked about him. This was going to be one of them and we're going to see that in a moment. This is a great picture of the promises of the coming son. Because this story of, of Abraham reinforces a lot of spiritual truths. First of all, go back to verse 2. We get to see the preciousness of the son on display. Because God is underscoring, take your son, your only son, the one that you love greatly. Well, that's a, that's a mimic for, for Christ on how Christ, um, Christ was loved by the Father. And he had a special relationship of his only begotten son. And we get to see that all over the Gospels. We get to see in verse 2, go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him. That's going to be a special place. It's a place of importance. Because if you uh, jump down to verse 14... This place, this place called Moriah, the place in which he names the Lord will provide, I call that place ground zero. Because that mount, Mount Moriah, is the most central, important spot on the entire planet. That spot, Mount Moriah, is the place to where the history of the entire um, history of man took place. The place is called Jehovah Jireh. Um, the Lord will provide. But it is the same place 
in the city of Jerusalem where our Lord was crucified. It's a great place. Why is it important? Because it is the place to where um, our Lord died, where he sacrificed himself. And we also get to see that when he um, was trying to offer up Isaac as his sacrifice, we get to see as a burnt offering that our Lord willingly sacrificed himself. And so this is a great picture of our Lord. And this picture is found throughout the Old Testament. Every single feast, every single offering um, it has a picture of our Lord. It's a picture about Jesus to where it gives us glimpses of how, how Jesus was to fulfill the promises of God. And so this place is found in Jerusalem. It is a place to where God is going to tell David in 1 Chronicles 21 to purchase a piece of land to do an offering. It is the place to where Solomon is, is going to build the house of the Lord on Mount Moriah. It is the place to where our Lord is going to return. It's only composed of about 40 acres, but 2,000 years after this takes place, the Lord sends his son as a sacrifice for his people. And so this is a great place. It is Mount Moriah. But as Paul Harvey would say in a few moments that we have left, there is a rest of the story. The story doesn't end here. And to get that story, you have to turn to um, Hebrews chapter 11. So turn, turn there with me, if you would, for the remainder of, of our time. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter, that great hall of faith, hall of fame, whatever you want to describe it, has many great men and women of great faith. And it begins to answer the question of why Abraham was so faithful in carrying out the, the sacrifice of, of his son. It begins in verse 1 by defining what faith is. In verse 1 it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That word assurance there means essence or substance. It talks about a reality as opposed to fantasy. And so faith is something that is real. Faith is something that is solid. And it goes on to say it is also the conviction of things not seen. Which means it's such a reality that there's a firm belief in it. And it's interesting because as this one chapter sort of unwinds, all of the promises in which they had faith about did not become a reality to each one of them outside of the fact that they just believed God. And so it was something to where they didn't see the outcome of what they were hoping in, of that reality, but it was real. They could trust God, and it made their faith firm. Not shaky. It's exactly what Peter says, as what uh, Pastor Joey is going through in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, where Peter talks about how you love Christ, but you've never seen him. That one fact confounds the world. They think our faith is foolishness when we have a faith in him. 
Because they, they don't understand how we could have an unconditional love in a person that we've never seen. We've never met Jesus face to face. We've never touched him. We've never walked with him. We never shared a meal. We never laughed with, with him. We never even, as even what Thomas saw and had when he said, I'm only going to believe when I uh, see the, the holes in his hand and his feet and his side. But yet we still love Christ and we've never seen him. And so faith begins with that aspect of having a trust in, in God. And it's interesting because then it, uh, then it begins to, um, in verse 2 says, For by, by it, by faith, the men of old gain approval. For anyone who comes to a saving knowledge, they gain approval by having an unswerving trust in the Lord. And then in verse 6 we find the aspect where faith begins, true faith begins at salvation. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is in a rewarder of those who seek him. You just can't believe in a God or in a power that's out there. God is real. And then he has revealed himself in his word. And we take how he has revealed himself in his word to heart. It tells us that we're a sinner. It tells us that our sin separates us from a holy God. That there isn't a God of the left side of the Bible, and now there's a God of the right side of the Bible. Because if you ever share your faith with someone, they're going to go and park on the fact that God is a God of love. And I believe that God is a God of love, and that's it. But you have to see that God is, is a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath to where he has to judge sin. And he's going to judge sin in a righteous way. But he provided a way for have, to have our sins forgiven. Is that whoever sees their sins and repents of their sins shall have their, um, their sins completely and utterly forgiven. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't buy your way to heaven, but salvation is a free gift. And that's the beginning of faith. And when I was back in high school, I first heard the gospel. I first realized that I was a sinner and that my sin needed to be judged. And I knew that if I were to die tonight, I would have no confidence that I would stand in heaven before a holy God. I knew that, you know, I'd done some good works and I've done some bad things. But I always hoped that at the end of my life, my good things would outweigh my bad things. But even one bad thing needed to be judged. But God sent his son to be the sacrifice, to be the substitute to where he took my place. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior... You need to put your complete trust in him because he says that we can know that we have eternal life because he paid the sin that was destined to me. And I want you to talk to myself or talk to one of the ushers in the back and they will take you aside and open up the word so that you can have the confidence to know 
and see the gospel and know to have eternal life. But once you have eternal life, your faith then begins to grow. And you will begin to have this kind of faith as what Abraham has. I want you to look at, with with a few minutes that we have left, there isn't much, down in verse 17. Because it's going to list a number of people that had great faith. And it answers the question of the why. In verse 17, by faith, when uh, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So that's Genesis chapter 22. And he who received the promises, the offering up of his only begotten son. And it was, uh, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Now look at verse 19. This is the why. Abraham considered that God is able to raise people from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Why did God do, try to uh, kill his son to be obedient to the father? Because somehow he figured out that if God was going to fulfill the promises that he made to him to give them a land, a seed, and a blessing, that he would somehow raise his son from the dead to pull his molecules from a pile of ashes and raise him from the dead. Because he knew that God would provide. Where did he get that from? There was no precedent that God ever raised anyone from the dead before him. This was, this was before um, Elijah, you know, going to the widow's, uh, uh, raising the widow's son. This was before, you know, our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. People just don't rise again from the dead, especially from a pile of ashes. The faith that Abraham had was a faith that he learned through the trials and errors of his walk with God that the Lord would provide in the midst of his situation. And that's exactly what Peter opens up the book. Because if you remember what, what Pastor Joey was saying, he opens the book by saying, remember your God. Remember, because First Peter is a book about persecution and how to live in persecution. Then in verse 2, remember your salvation. And then he talks about remember your inheritance. Their actions were based upon their theology, their understanding of, of God. And so how can we have a faith like Abraham? Is that we need to get in the word and understand that when those difficult times will come, God will provide. It is something to where... God will show you to trust him because he is there saying, trust me. Why are you worrying? Trust me. Don't fret. Trust me. That's why there are a writer of the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding and all your way acknowledge him and he will make your way your path straight, excuse me. And so that's the faith that we can have. 
It's a great faith. It's a faith that takes a while, but is based on simple trust. The Lord says, trust me. So that always begs the question for me, in what area, and I am not trusting in the Lord. Maybe it's the salvation of my kids. Parents could worry a lot about the salvation of of their kids. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's monetary issues. Maybe it's issues with our spouse. Whatever it is, and they will be there. They will be multicolored. They will be multi-shaped. How are you going to handle things? The first reaction of the flesh is to figure it out ourselves. But the reaction of Abraham was, the Lord will provide. I don't know. The Lord's there. And keeping the Lord as part of the equation as we make our decisions is crucial. Father, we thank you that we can come. So much more could be said because I have so much more here, but that's okay. The simple fact, and as we get to see through this great narrative through Abraham, was one in which we can all relate to. Trust. For we don't want a shaky faith. We want a strong faith. So we ask that your spirit will move in our hearts to not only examine where we are falling short, but to give us the confidence to know that you are faithful, not only to forgive our sins and to grant the most vilest of sinners salvation, but also to be there every day. So thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.